0: Hello, I'm Carrie Bigmore. Welcome to Brains Trust. In this podcast, we will enlist the country's most interesting, funny and often complex people to help us reflect and understand our lives a little better. They aren't experts necessarily, but they all have curious minds, big brains and love a laugh. This Brains Trust of well-known Australians has been gathered together by journalist and producer Chris Walker. Hi, Carrie. Who are we here from, Chris?
1: I've spoken to people that I admire, people that
2: I care about and people that I work with. I'm Chris Brown. I'm a, uh, a veterinarian.
3: My name's Adam Briggs. I'm a Yorta Yorta man. I'm Ryan Chang. I'm a stand-up comedian. Uh,
4: my name's Annabelle Crabb.
3: I'm Willie Ali. Hello, I'm
4: Kitty Flanagan.
3: My name's Hamish
5: Blake. I am a... First Year Apprentice Homeschool Teacher.
0: Each episode will move between these awesome guests, like an eavesdrop on the ultimate conversation. So before we bury 2020 deep in our memory, we're going to walk through it all again and see how it changed us and what we learnt along the way. Let's continue Season 1 of Brains Trust. 2020 was a hell of a year to be a leader. In recent times, our trust and respect for our politicians has been truly tested. But this year, we needed them more than ever. We needed them to organise us, to govern us and to represent us. How'd they go? Well, let's find out. We started the year with our country on fire and Prime Minister Scott Morrison heading to Hawaii for a holiday with his family. Hamish Blake felt the optics of his family escape weren't great.
5: Yeah, that was... That was an interesting one. Um, who am I to say? Like, who knows? I mean, I don't know what he's. I don't know what his schedule was like before that, and he might have. It might have been four years without taking a break, and he just pencilled it in. It's and just funny to- that
1: it's Hawaii though. Like Hawaii to me, just it's the ultimate escapism holiday <laughs> because it's like Hawaiian shirts
5: and like yeah, it is one of the holidays you go to that's essentially has a fancy dress element. So it's like. <laughs> That's probably, yeah, the biggest backfire. If he was like cosplaying or something, even worse. If it like if it was like, if he, you know, and he's allowed to do it once in his private time, but if he was like a furry or something and he was at a convention and he was like, dressed as a teddy bear, that would be, there's not too many things that were worse than just the Hawaiian shirt to project an image of I don't care, which I'm sure is uh, the opposite of how he was feeling. But as we all know, it's not what you say. It's what people hear.
0: Annabelle Crabb thinks that image will haunt the PM for a while to come. It's,
4: it's the sort of dominant image, isn't it? That one of him with a kind of garland on his head. I mean, you do get images that become permanent and I don't know quite what the chemistry of them is, but sometimes you just get images that stick, you know, like Alexander Downer and the fishnets, for instance. Mm. I think that the old um, Hawaiian shirt and the lei w- will become his permanent <laughs> image, even though you know, it was really quite a short period of time. But as I said, like it, it was the the office kind of not confirming where he was that meant that when the reveal came, it was through a news organisation. You know, um, and that's the very worst way to be sort of exposed when you've you've you haven't been entirely straightforward. Um, and so that became really imprinted I think in people's brains it really just focused attention I think on um, this national sense of uncertainty and fear about you know what's going on and I think that the Prime Minister at that point didn't seem like a massively reassuring figure Um, but you know that will also go on, I think, to be a really definitive experience in the life of this Prime Minister as well because, you know, the next time a, a national crisis appeared and, jeez, it wasn't very much later, he actually exhibited a really different demeanour, I think, and a different style of, of leadership.
1: But in some ways the focus went off him fairly quickly and landed on the state premiers.
4: Um. Yeah, although, I mean, I think the most significant decision that he has taken in his whole prime ministership is the decision to form the National Cabinet because, Mm. you know, that's a pretty historically unusual thing to do. I mean, you're not talking about him just getting kind of Liberal premiers together and caucusing with them. You're dealing with a group that is, you know, um, in which Labor is... um, Uh, more than half represented. So it was a pretty big call, really. Um, I mean, I think it's worked out. At the beginning I thought this is really interesting and will it lead to um, a preparedness to make some of the reforms to the federal system that um, have been bleedingly obvious and necessary for some time. After the lived experience of 2020 in the National Cabinet, I'm less optimistic about that, but um, it certainly has been a, um, a really welcome um, adjustment to or revision of the old Coag model, which was just you know so sclerotic and dysfunctional
0: that it really deserved to be taken out the back paddock and shot. Hotel quarantine and celebs avoiding it made headlines in 2020, but Kitty Flanagan wasn't too quick to judge because I just said when people kicked off about Nicole Kidman. Mm. And
6: I just didn't see what the kickoff was about. She was paying for her own, so she wasn't costing the government money, she was paying for her own isolation. she was bringing a whole bunch of work to the country by doing this production out here. It just kind of annoys me that people... I agree. It's a. I think that's quite an Australian thing to kind of just want to have a go. And it's like, ah, oh, but then you'd be annoyed if she filmed it somewhere else. Like she did the right thing, she brought it home, said, I'll film it here... And then everyone goes, oh, you should be in Travel It's like, so why should she be in lodge? <laughs> you know, if she's prepared to pay all this money to isolate everybody, I just think you don't have to put her in travel lodge. She doesn't need a lesson. She doesn't need, you know, bringing down. Like just let her be in the Southern Highlands isolating on her own, paying for it.
1: She was in Days of Thunder. She should be laid to do whatever she wants.
6: She's a BMX bandit before that. Come on.
1: Do you feel like whenever something big happens, governments are always caught on the hop? Like we know enough to know that epidemics and pandemics are a predictable enough event, but it always feels like governments are caught a bit surprised.
6: Well, I feel like when we all watched that film Contagion, it's like, okay, well, we all were told exactly what was going to happen and yet we've all gone, oh, my God, surprise, and yet that film, (laughs) that is exactly what just happened. It's like (laughs) why did we? So clearly someone knew, someone showed us exactly what's going to happen. And we all just went, well, that'll never happen. And then we went, oh, my God, it just happened. How could this happen? It's pretty weird that we're just in
0: denial all the time. So if we didn't learn our lessons pre-COVID from Hollywood, how will we react post-COVID at the state ballot box? Annabelle has noticed an interesting shift.
4: For all of the arguments, you know, and that they've been about, particularly centering around Victoria, about whether, you know, Dan Andrews is an... um, is an oppressive dictator or whether he's, you know, like that has been the main source of partisan dispute in this year, right? Like what do you think of Dan Andrews? Is he a dictator or is he a saint? Mm -hmm. And people who don't even live anywhere near Melbourne have been probably the most exercised (laughs) about this question. And one of the disconnects has been people outside Melbourne, um, particularly those who are critics of, Dan Andrews, being unable to believe that people inside Victoria can still support him, right? And that is the thing that I find the most interesting about this year is that um, governments that have taken really, really strict lockdown measures have done well with their own constituency. Mm. So that's true of Queensland. Uh, it's certainly true of Western Australia where Mark McGowan yeah. is like more popular than Jesus Christ and even is mm. not, I mean, doesn't I matter. Mean, I mean,
1: Jesus wasn't popular <laughs> <laughs> to everyone.
4: I'm talking post, uh, post-mortem. You know, yeah, right. Posthumous popularity. Okay. You've, mm. I think, identified a possible chink in my analogy there. Thank you, Chris. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also think it's funny that, Nobody seems to be really attacking Western Australia for remaining locked forever in the way that... um, That's
1: weird. I don't understand that.
4: Well, I think no-one wants to take on Western Australia. I mean, they've just bloody wanted to secede forever and now they've managed to do it and no-one seems to be questioning that. Like, even in the federal budget lockup, (laughs) we're watching Josh Frydenberg and Matthias Cormann talking about their presumptions about the reopening of the economy, and they're all like, yes, we'll be open, everything will be open by Christmas, hashtag, you know, star, except for Western Australia, which is allowed to stay shut forever apparently. Anyway, isn't it interesting that people, constituents, seem to be responding to these sort of tough borders? And Mm. the, the founding fathers of Australia were super clear about the necessity in the Federation for trade between the states to be free and unencumbered. Like, it's one of the most significant principles in the Constitution. And that's gone absolutely down the toilet this year because actually trade has not been in any way free uh, between the states because half of them have had lockdown borders. And you know what? People love it. People love that shit.
0: Kitty is also interested to see how 2020 will impact our vote.
4: I mean, I think Victoria will be interesting
6: because I think, unfortunately, I think there'll be a knee-jerk reaction I hope there isn't, but I think everyone will go, oh, boo, Dan Andrews, he caused the virus. Um, Whereas I think whoever got this job, whoever was in charge of it, I mean, they just, they got the the short straw. Like Mm. who wants to be in charge when this happens? And I don't think it helps when other politicians go around, you know, saying it's the Dandemic. It's like, well, see, you're not helpful. You're just being childish, like. Offer a better solution then, which Mm. is what no one's doing. No one's offering a better solution. They're just going, he's wrong.
1: I found myself knowing all the premiers for the first time.
6: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But it's been interesting. I think what's been interesting about this is to realise how much the states don't work together, like how isolated everyone is, how individual each state is, whereas I kind of thought we were a bit more ruled by the federal government. But yeah, it's really become apparent that it's a different rule for each state and the states are in charge. So we could effectively get rid of one level of government, maybe we get rid of the federal government and just go with local and state.
1: Yeah, because I feel like at a basic level, most people just sort of think there's the state government, but then the big bosses are the federals, and they come in when we, but as we've learned that constitutionally, you know, they have fairly substantial power.
6: Yeah, it's been surprising that, you know, Scott Morrison can't order anyone to open the border. (laughs) They'll just go, no, we'll do what we want. (laughs) He's become a bit of a figurehead. It's like, oh, good on you, we'll just call you the Queen now. (laughs) You
0: don't really do anything. (laughs) Queen Morrison. Comparably speaking, Australia has fared very well in 2020, but there were still significant mistakes. There was the Ruby Princess debacle, and in Victoria, a quarantine bungle set off one of the world's toughest lockdowns. Chris asked Novocastrian, and Dr Chris Brown how we should feel about our leaders.
1: Do you think we should be cross at our politicians in 2020 or just grateful that it went okay
2: in a global sense? I think we should be... I, you know, I, I'm doing my best to not use the phrase unprecedented times. <laughs> Um and certainly they were, but I believe one of the cornerstones of, of government is to have a, a strong healthcare system. It is essential for, for life in every sense. And I think it uncovered the the frailty of our of our healthcare system and the fact that we'd been stripping cash out of it for for years. And and seemingly Victoria had probably stripped a bit more out and, and therefore copped it a bit more with with the lack of contact tracing and and and, and skill there. But New South Wales's own inadequacies with the Ruby Princess, as you mentioned, were, were highlighted as well. And we've we've had some bungles in this state, but because we've we've righted the ship, everyone, everyone's like, oh no, we're 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 okay. We've we've done all right. But I think we've been lucky more than um than well managed. Chance of Black Lives Matter echoed
0: through 2020 as a global protest movement gathered steam, even in the face of a pandemic. The protest was sparked by a video showing the death of a black man, George Floyd. And for most of us, Ronnie Cheng included, the vision of him being pinned under the knee of a white policeman in Minneapolis was confronting.
3: I couldn't watch it. I watched, I think I saw a little bit of it, but I didn't see, I couldn't watch it till the end. It was horrific. It felt like it was like the end of America. Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. I think it kind of... um it kind of like provided this very real raw horrific incident on video that erased the shine of the American idea of like equality or, um, it's very hard to defend a country when that's happening in it, you know, Mm -hmm. um, with no response. And also it, it kind of, yeah, it's not the kind of thing you, you're supposed to see in a in a, a de- sophisticated democracy mm. that has equality and has, is a government of the people by the people, you know? So, yeah, in a weird way, I mean, that's a really good way to put it. Um, the other side of it is that that stuff has been happening for a long time now. That just wasn't a visceral video to kind of be a rally point know, a, a horrendous rally point for this. So in a way it's like a lot of people already knew that. And there was this kind of very American, like uh, veneer of respectability. And you know, th- this doesn't happen here. And that. so the video kind of removed that a little bit and kind of forced people to confront that issue.
0: Adam Briggs, a proud indigenous man, did watch the George Floyd video. I watched the whole thing
3: because,
7: like, I didn't want to not give it that respect, you know, for him, and it wasn't easy. I think essentially, you know, when you can boil it down, it's like you're watching a person's last moments. He doesn't come back from consciousness after that. That's him. That's That's where his story ends right there, and that's very sobering when you think about it like that. Mm -hmm. Everybody's watching this thing, and the nature of – you know our morbid curiosity and the way you know the tabloid TMZ nature of of who we are as a society. We we make t-shirts out of it and jam it up on on this and that and and memes and whatever you know, some to help um, spread the word and understand it. But I think a lot of people miss the actual gravity of it outside of the sensational aspect of you know. The Black Lives Matter movement is like at the core of it. We're watching a, you know, well, a group of men take the life of another. And um, that's mm-hmm. the last moment for him. It was a pretty sobering moment. And that's why I wrote something. I wasn't going to write anything about it. What more could I add, except from the point of view of an Indigenous person from Australia? And you watch all these people pour their hearts out because that's what's popping in America right now. And it's like, bro, we've got it right here and you guys don't address it.
1: That video sparked a whole lot of protests, Black Lives Matter protests in America that then, as you said, made their way to Australia. Was that a good thing?
7: Yeah. Well, it happens all the time, man. Like Australia takes its cues from the states, you know, all the time black Blackfellas in this country just have to take the moments that uh, afforded them, you know? It's like I asked this question when it was happening. I was like, I wonder how many people reconcile this Black Lives Matters movement with Australia or do they think this is them protesting for America, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there's a disconnect there with with um, well, actually, I'm pretty sure there is a disconnect with white Australia and um, indigenous relations and and what's happening here. I would bet money that most of them were protesting for America. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it feels like from my perspective that we're stuck in a situation where there's two sides. one side's been completely trodden on for a long period of time, and now, and 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 has a few tools at its disposal, like protests and stuff, which is all incredibly important. And you know often what that community gets back is just a sense of get over it. And it feels like there's almost an insurmountable disconnect. So I guess my question is, is sort of the the retreat into our own identities, whether it be Aboriginal or white or Asian or whatever, is it going to stop us from ever progressing to being together?
7: Um, I don't think so. I think like our cultures and and who we are are paramount in having a a vibrant community, and you know, it's what makes communities good. It's what makes us alive. It's the respect. It's like the difference is 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 white people have had the microphone and the power for so long, for so mm. long that they're not used to sharing it. Mm. So as soon as that shift happens and as, as soon as those things are, are challenged, it's, it becomes incredibly uncomfortable for them. So disruption is, is the only mechanism that we have, protest, because for so long – that's been the only way to channel our frustration and our, um, and our message. Often we're met with, you know, a paternalistic idea that, you know, should you want to be heard, use your indoor voice and, you know, why can't you be like so-and-so? Why can't you be like that? It's just like a symptom of racism. It's like, act more white. Mm. And and we might let you in. It often feels like it's only white people that are afraid of can we move forward? You know what I mean? Like the question, like thinking about the question, like can we move forward if we're all in in our identities? It's mm. like if, if I'm Aboriginal, you're white, my mate's Chinese. Yeah. So can we move forward as a community in harmony? It's like, yes. But so often it's like white people who've held the power for so long are asking us, please act white (laughs) so we can move forward and we can be Mm. comfortable Mm. because we hold the keys. Mm. You know what I mean?
1: Sometimes I wonder whether or not your animosity towards white people would mean that you and I could never fully know each other.
7: Well, I think, you know my animosity towards white people is like it's like being mad you know it's like white people's the company you know what i mean mm. <laughs> it's it's the colony it's it's everything that it represents and i think the frustration with you know we know that that you and old mate down the road and the guy just walked past in the street, you know, probably didn't rape and murder anybody. Probably, <laughs> you know. But anyway, I the thing is, is like I, the frustration for me, I can't speak for everybody, but the frustration for me is coming from the, the lack of understanding that you will benefit from it. Every day, mm. you know, I'm, I'm not like I'm not even asking for an apology or anything like that. It's just a, it's just an acknowledgement of understanding. Like, holy shit! Like, we did some horrific things to get this farm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, my great grandfather probably shot his great grandfather and poisoned them all. You know what I mean? To obtain this land. Like, once you start acknowledging, you know, the disparity and the distance between us economically as well, you get to understand (coughs) the frustrations. I spoke about this on on maybe Q&A, you know, when my parents went to go buy a house for the first time and it was all lined up. The owner of the house found out they were black and reneged on the deal. And before that, you know, we weren't allowed to own houses. Like we we you know, we've only like generational wealth is is gonna be a new thing for us. You know, all my money's new. And then on top of that, you just got straight out racism. <laughs> like people just not liking us. Like imagine you've probably had a job that you hated at some point and you had to go in there every day, and maybe you know, they didn't like you. Like that's kind of like being aboriginal waking up in australia you wake up in a in a country that majority of people probably don't like you Hmm. i talk about australia like i talk about everything that it represents like i don't look at it interpersonally because i've got a heap of great friends from all different cultures you know what i mean so like i look at australia as a business and what it represents as the colony how it was founded, and what it's built on. It's like everyone who works in the building isn't racist, but that's a racist building.
1: <laughs> what about pulling statues down? For example, Captain Cook's statue in Hyde Park.
7: I said it on a song I wrote the other day with an artist. I said, what's that statue say about you if you don't teach the truth? They don't teach the truth about who they are and what they did. So, you know, they're monuments to what?
1: So, you'd be happy for them to stay if if they were used to teach people the true, like the real stats. Mm.
7: Macquarie, he's my favorite. He's my favorite scumbag. You do love him. Oh, bro. He's the worst one. They named universities after him, banks, (laughs) rivers. You know what I mean? Like, how can they be monuments to history if they don't teach actual history? Hmm. It's a out
0: You can't address a big year in politics without acknowledging the circus that was the US election, Annabelle Crabb.
1: How badly has Donald Trump injured democracy?
0: Pretty badly, I think. I really struggle to
4: understand how a country like America, which has just been inordinately attached to its own icons, you know, to its own... Um, history as this sort of um, democratic project that proudly is pluralist and that puts an almost holy value on the dignity of office, um, of the Oval Office. I mean, that is, I think, one of the most confronting things about the Trump presidency is that occupancy of the Oval Office does not connote a sense of, elevation and principle in the way that it used to. And I think, I mean, even, you know, um, on election night, well, early post-election morning at 2.30am 30, 30 or whenever it was when Trump came out and, um, you know, used speaking from the White House, incorrectly claimed to have won the election with all of the fervour of a tin-pop dictator and um, started throwing around demands about stopping um the accepting of votes and so on. I mean, that's an extraordinary
0: thing to do. But Walid Ali doesn't lay all the blame at Trump's feet. Perhaps the president is a symptom of broader societal problems.
8: I think there's a big argument to be had about whether or not Donald Trump is merely reflective of something or generative. Like, you know, does he set things in motion or does he reflect what's already in motion? Hmm. And I am inclined to think he reflects what's already in motion. So I think he only gets elected in 2016 because of the world's ready for him to get elected in 2016. And here I could talk about a whole lot of stuff that people have been talking about for ages, so I won't bore you with it, but, you know, things to do with the rise of anti-liberal um, forces, um, growing popular suspicion of the neoliberal order, globalisation capitalism, um, free markets, etc., And Donald Trump kind of rides in on that wave and then sort of that kind of racialized politics which has been building for a long time. But I think more than probably any of that, he's a reality TV star in an age where our political ethics have come to be dominated by the sort of ethics and values of television, <laughs> right, which is not a good thing. Um, he is capable of talking in very – TV engaging and entertaining sort of ways, and then he's a perfectly built figure for a a forum like social media. So I kind of hold this view that if Trump didn't come along, someone else does, because the conditions are right for that sort of person. In which case, the question of what he's done to our world kind of changes its complexion, right? Because he hasn't done much to our world. He's just kind of illustrated to us what was already and inevitably going to happen. But- the, the the kind of direct things, I think, that have happened um, that concern the world, apart from, you know, the policy detail stuff of, you know, trade relationships with China, um, attacking multilateralism in the form of withdrawing from the World Health Organization, the Paris Agreement on climate change, like that sort of stuff. Apart from that is I think he's generated a kind of copycat politics that you saw. I mean, you, you saw it here in that sort of the rise of Hansonism Um, and then just the emboldenment of certain voices of that sort of style who kind of really felt like they were now part of the main game. You see it in the sort of persistent presence of people like Nigel Farage um, and the rise of far-right groups across Europe into mainstream politics and all that sort of thing. We should be clear that Europe has seen that before very famously, so it's not that that's an entirely new thing, but it's – by the president of the US being prepared to gesture in that direction and sometimes even embody that kind of politics, it does obviously legitimize it for a whole lot of countries around the world and for political parties in countries around the world. So I think that's really significant. You
1: talked about the far right then. Yeah. Who's winning the culture war between the tedious left and the bloviating right?
8: No one can ever win it. Like they need each other. But they keep trying to win. Yeah, yeah. It's like like a lot of wars, right? Like What would it mean to win that war, that the other side disappears? I don't know. That's what I'm asking you. You you tell me. You you ask the question. What does it mean?
1: I mean, I agree with you. They live in perpetual disharmony for a reason.
8: No, but it's perpetual reliance. (laughs) It's interdependence, right?
1: It's reliant disharmony. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very good answer, but but I think the second part to that question is that we continue to fight this exhausting war in the media and on social media and in our own minds where there appears to be less and less ground for shared reality.
8: So I think that's also one of Trump's legacies is that he's taken such spectacularly extreme rhetorical positions that he's raided the middle ground. There's basically no middle ground left. It's very difficult to occupy a middle position because you can't really negotiate with what Trump's laying down. (laughs) Um, But because I think he's reflective of stuff that was already underway, you see similar rhetorical tendencies in that respect on the left as well, right? You see this sort of erasure of the middle ground and this removal of places of what I would call places of deliberation, right? So I, I don't just mean people being able to talk at each other. I mean people being able to genuinely exchange ideas, engage, concede points, adopt points, um, subtly shift their positions, enrich each other through that exchange. That's kind of gone. So Trump, I think, turbocharges that because he does that with the sort of institutional power of the U.S. presidency. But that's been underway for for quite a long time, right? And so, if you're talking about who's winning that culture war, actually. Both sides win it because in the end it feels anyway to me like what they're trying to do is appeal to their own people and both sides are very capable of doing that now and the other side of that culture war is really just raw material that you can use in order to satisfy yourself amongst your own support base. Mm -hmm. These These are closed subcultures now, I think, and... I think in that context, it's very hard to have democracy in sort of the full sense of that word.
0: A bastion of America's democracy and this podcast is that of free speech. So Chris posed an interesting question to Hamish Blake.
1: Is everyone entitled to their opinion?
0: <laughs>
5: yeah, I guess they are. But facts aren't opinions. That's why we feel a bit defenseless in the in the world of Trump and misinformation and looking at the US election at the moment, just going, Jesus, you can just say anything. Mm. And what Trump mastered was if you just keep the lies coming at such a pace, it's like it takes one second to say a lie. And it might, even if it takes one minute to fact check it, like I will beat the opposition by a factor of 60 here as long as I keep the lies coming because no one will be able to get on top of them. So sure. I guess because you can't cross that line of going, okay, well, actually, a bunch of people aren't entitled to their opinion because then that's a dictatorship. Because of that loophole, I guess you can just keep spurious information jetting out and there's not enough time. Like, I, I think like the the rest of the democratic world, I'm like, Trump's a maniac and he's a scary thing. Even with that mindset, right, like I was in the car the other day and I think it was yesterday, I hear this thing on the radio, it's a piece of a Trump rally where he's going, I'm worried about I'm worried about these postal votes. He goes, they found 50,000 of them in a swamp. Just 50,000. <laughs> and they found them in a swamp. And, and you know, that's what I'm worried about. No one's keeping a track on them. I was like, I know it's a lie. I, like, who's they? What swamp?
1: No, they didn't. But Imagine how I'm hard it would be to get 50 it.
4: I'm still how, much,
1: it. how hard would we get to 50,000 envelopes into a swamp?
5: <laughs> in a swamp. And I'm like, that's his, that's his genius because. I didn't hear anything about Biden that day. So it's like, he's is <laughs> We're talking about this. And we're not, and he knows, it's like, he doesn't care. He figured out, it's like, he it doesn't care what I say. If they're talking about me and they're not talking about Biden, I'm winning.
0: That's it for episode three of Brains Trust. On the next episode, with so much attention focused on a runaway virus this year, we may be forgetting there's another fairly big problem still waiting to be solved the climate.
2: You can't have a strong Australia unless we do something about climate change because the consequences are getting more and more severe and more and more heartbreaking and it has an effect on the national psyche as well.
0: Our Brains Trust gets angry. They get emotional about a planet in pain and the plight of our furry friends. See you next time on Brains Trust, the year we can't forget.